right. Good morning, church. Uh, happy 4th of July. I'm glad to be here with all of us this morning to, again, preach our last Zoom sermon. I know the last time that I spoke, I thought that was going to be my last Zoom sermon. I'm not going to lie to you. I thought the next time I speak, it's going to be in person. I'm going to have flesh in front of me to receive the word. Um, but hey, things happen. And uh, our staff, we joke about it where they say, hey, I'm just going to be a Zoom preacher. We're going to see uh, the next time that I'm scheduled to preach. Who knows? The Delta virus, my, the variant might just get out of control. And it's like, hey, Shim, sorry, Zoom again. Uh, God willing, that won't happen. But I'm here. Uh, and it's good to see uh, familiar and new faces and names here. Always encouraging to see you all. And again, my name is Daniel and I am the college director here. Uh, and if you're new, if this is your first time, I'm so glad to, uh, I guess, kind of meet you here. Uh, but again, I'm really looking forward to resuming our normal weekly gatherings of meeting in person. And first, we have to pray uh, that we get Buena Park High School because it's been it's been heating up. I can't imagine being outdoor in parks. So let's pray for that. But uh, like I mentioned, today is July 4th and this holiday, it's significant, obviously, in many ways. But whenever I think about the 4th of July, I think about my childhood. I've been living in the same apartment complex. I've been in this room for uh, almost 20 years now. And from about the ages of seven to 18 in my childhood, in my adolescence, uh, our neighborhood, we had this annual tradition every July 4th, we go out to the cul-de-sac and we just light up fireworks from dusk to dawn, right? All this trash everywhere. It's a pain to, to you know, there's loud noises, sparks, people getting hurt. Um, and it's been a while. It's been a long, long time since I've last touched a firework. But whenever this time comes around, I get, I get nostalgic in a way. I, I, I get a little bit simpy, right? And in a way, July 4th was and even might still be my favorite holiday since the whole day, all these memories I had of spending with my neighbors. Um, we would swim all day. We'd eat barbecue together. And of course, like I mentioned, we'd light up fireworks all night long. But sadly, as the neighborhood kids got older, myself included, as people slowly went away for college or moved out of the apartment, that, that tradition has pretty much died out. And when I think about it, those were the days, like all those years ago, those were the last times I actually had meaningful connections with my neighbors. I mean, if I'm honest, these days, the most I'll interact with the neighbors, just give them a quick smile and nod, just one of these, uh, as we awkwardly walk past each other from, from the garbage disposal, the parking lot. Um, but why do I mention this? Why do I talk about my childhood experience the 4th of July? Um, like Pastor Tom mentioned, we've come to the end of our series on the five loves. And the last love that we're going to look at is, you guessed it, our love for our neighbors. And we've taken a look at love, just to recap, a love for God, love for one another as Christians, love for our family. And last week, Pastor Tommy, we talked about love for even our enemies. And now today, we're going to take a look at how as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to love our neighbors. And I'll admit that that phrase, love your neighbor, has become one of those cliche Christianese phrases that we've probably heard all too many times, especially if you grew up attending church. Uh, but as with the, uh, the four other types of love, um, it's a biblical command. It's something that is required of us, yet it's one that far too many of us neglect far too often, myself included. And there's a handful of passages in the Bible that really addresses this issue, this command to love our neighbors. But the passage we're going to look at today is 
Uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Three short verses, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. So I'll give us a couple moments to turn there in our Bibles or our Bible apps. Um, but if we're all there, I'll go ahead and read for us Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. This is Paul writing. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the reading of God's word. I don't think uh, too many people know this about me, maybe, maybe a small handful of you here, uh, but when I was actually in college, I worked at an insurance company the summer before my senior year, uh, and the name of that company, I, I'm pretty sure all of us here have heard, uh, the, that company's name was State Farm, and their slogan, they, their jingle, it's, it's a very iconic part of their brand, right? Like, a good neighbor, State Farm is there, and you know, all those funny commercials, like, Jake from State Farm, all those things, right? It, it, it sticks with us. Um, but State Farm, they really capitalize on this, uh, on this idea that, hey, they're an insurance company where their agents are just to call away. They're, they're there whether it's a home or auto or natural disaster. They're good neighbors, right? And, you know, personally, I, I, I really like those commercials. I thought they were clever and witty. I thought it was a good shtick, good marketing. But in the brief time, that I worked at State Farm, I could tell that this was actually something they believed in, right? From the first day of training on, like I, this idea that taking care of our customers was the highest priority, this was ingrained into my mind. And I, I'm not, I'm not lying. I even had phone calls where customers, where clients would say, hey, you know, we don't mind paying a little bit more of a premium because hey, you guys at State Farm, you guys take care of us. We feel good. You guys go above and beyond. And I think that's all part of State Farm's brand. I think they're onto something because inherently we as human beings, we all want good neighbors. We want to be cared for. We want to be loved on. We want to have people that we can depend on when we're in need. And while our passage today, it doesn't talk about providing affordable home or auto insurance or finding good neighbors. It does tell us about how to be good neighbors. Right? Romans 13, 8 through 10 instructs us on how to show neighborly love. So for those of you taking notes, uh, there's three points that we're going to go over to see what the Bible has to say, what Paul has to say, what Jesus has to say about loving our neighbors. So first, we're going to look at the definition of loving our neighbors. Right? What type of love is love for our neighbors? Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Second, we're going to examine the debt to love our neighbors, debt as in D-E-B-T, we'll see that we actually have a debt that we owe this type of love to our neighbors. So the definition and the debt. And thirdly and lastly, we're going to look at the display of neighborly love, right? What does it actually look like for us to love our neighbors? What effect does that have when we love our neighbors? So three points, the definition, the debt, and the display. So we'll start first with the definition. If we read verse 9 again, Paul says that for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. And I'll be honest, the first question that pops into my mind, that came into my mind as I prepared for this message, as I did all the research and studying was, hey, uh, who is my neighbor, right? Who do I have to love? Is it, is it my literal neighbor, the person that lived to the left and right of me? Is it people in the neighborhood, the general vicinity as me? Are my neighbors the people that I kind of get along with? Are my neighbors Christians or are they the non-believers? And the short answer to all those questions is yes. And I'll expand upon that answer in a little bit, but I thought it was interesting that that was the first question that came into my mind, right? I want to get a little bit deeper into why I, and perhaps you might be asking that question, wait a minute, who is my neighbor? Right. And I think the very fact that we ask this question, that this is our instinctual uh, um, response to love your neighbor, is that we're trying to find loopholes. Right. We want to find loopholes to to kind of qualify who it is that we love. Right. And if I could put it this way, we're choosing to love our neighbor by the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. That is, we turn this biblical command to love our neighbor, to love others into a chore rather than an act of love. Uh, but thankfully, we have the Bible, and in Luke chapter 10, 29, there's a lawyer that approaches Jesus during his ministry, and he asks this exact question. He asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus, he famously responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he shows that, hey, the neighbor, it doesn't have to do with your ethnicity. It doesn't have to do with your occupation. The neighbor is simply the person who shows mercy. Uh, one Bible dictionary, it defines a neighbor as, quote, any person we may come in contact with who has need. And to love one's neighbor means to be moved by compassion, to reach out and seek to meet that need, end quote. And what's interesting is that the word for neighbor in both passages is, is the Greek word plasion. And it sounds fancy, but uh, what's really interesting about it is it's not a noun. It's actually an adjective right? It's an adjective that literally translates to the one who is near or the one who's close by, right? Another way that people can translate it and, and the commentators think that they understood Placeon back then was just simply a fellow human being. That's who the neighbor is. So the definition of loving our neighbors isn't to love a certain type or a certain class of person, but it's really to love anyone that's around us, anyone that's around us with a need. So with this definition in mind, let's go back to my original question. Who is my neighbor? Right? Is it my literal neighbor? Yes. Is it the people that live in my area? Definitely. The people that I get along with? Yes, but it's also those who you don't get along with. Right? Is, the, is my neighbor the non-believer or the Christian? Yes and yes. Right? It's not only those categories, however, when our neighbor is literally any person, anyone who we come into contact with, who has a need, who is struggling, we see that there's an infinite amount of people, infinite number of people that we can consider our neighbors, right? But when we think about it like that, when we think, hey, 8 billion people on this planet, all of them could technically be our neighbors somehow, that's way too abstract of a definition for us. It's way too impersonal. Right? And when we have this abstract, impersonal idea of who our neighbor is, chances are we're going to react abstractly or impersonally or even not at all. Right? We're not going to know what to do. We're not going to love our neighbors. So here's a couple of descriptions 
of people that I hope will bring specific people into your minds as I kind of go through this list, right? So first, um, your, your literal neighbor, the, the one that lives right next to you, the one whose name you might not know, even though she's been there with her family for the last five years. Uh, your neighbor is your annoying coworker. Right? You see him every single day. You have to deal with all his weird habits and all these ticks and whatever it might be. Uh, your neighbor is the homeless man on the freeway exit that you kind of awkwardly avoid eye contact with as you wait for the light to turn green. Your neighbors are the other parents of your child's uh, youth sports team. Your neighbors are the people that you see at the cafe every time that you go to study. And I hope you see where I'm going with this. We all have people that when we just take a little bit of time to think about it, we all have people that we can consider as neighbors. We can concretely categorize so many people in our lives as neighbors if we just take a little bit more time, think a little bit more deeply. So I hope that today we can all take a moment just to intentionally think, hey, who is my neighbor? Who are the people around me who have needs? Who are the people that you come into close contact with on a regular, if not daily basis? So that's part one, the who of defining what it means to love our neighbors. The neighbor we're to love is anyone who, that, who we come into close regular contact with. And now the second half of defining you know, love for our neighbors is uh, we're going to look at the last part of verse nine and then verse 10, right? Paul writes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Pastor Tom, he shared a couple of weeks ago that the focus of our love is naturally inward facing, right? That is out of every human being on this planet, the person we love the most is not our kid, is not our spouse, it's not anyone else, but it's ourself. That is the person we love the most. And he shared about doing things that might look sacrificial, that might look like it's seeking the good for others. But if we're honest with ourselves, most, if not all the time, it's self-serving. We do things because we love ourselves. So when Paul says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's not saying, hey, the way you love your neighbors is to love uh, selfishly. It's to love them in a way that's going to benefit you. He's not saying that, but rather he's saying it's with this approach, this, this, this attitude, this desperation, this intensity to which you would preserve yourself. That's the extent to which you should love your neighbors. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Put it in another way, you should go to the degree with which you pursue your own happiness, your own satisfaction, your own fulfillment. For the sake of your neighbor, your coworker, the other parents, your landlord, whoever it might be. And this love, this agape that our pastors have been talking about, it's not natural. We know this. It's not self-serving. It's not attached to ulterior motives. Because of our sin, agape, this unconditional self-serving love, it's a foreign love that we have to learn over years and years. And we all know how difficult it can be right? Whether it's because we're introverted and we just don't want to put ourselves out there or because we actually have legitimate reasons not to interact with someone. Um, I would actually say these people are your enemies. So take a listen to last week's sermon. Uh, but no matter the reason, God still tells us, love your neighbor, love them, serve them, care for them. 
And if we think about it, I hope we all have this self-awareness to know, hey, that we ourselves, we're not the most pleasant people, right? We all have flaws and faults. But when has that ever stopped us from loving ourselves, right? When has that ever stopped us from seeking our own good? You know, despite our brokenness and our own annoying tendencies, we still love ourselves. We still continue to do what is good for ourselves. So it's a contradiction to look for these flaws and these faults in our neighbors as excuses not to love them. Yet we still do that, right? For example, we read Romans 13, 10, and then we try to find the loophole, right? We read, okay, Paul says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So we read this and we go, okay, aha, loving my neighbors, what that means is I just don't do any wrong to them. As long as I'm not harming or hurting them, that means I'm loving my neighbors. So we count that as love. But if we do that, that's a very Old Testament way to think about it. When we're more focused about negatively avoiding what we shouldn't do, rather than what we should positively, proactively seek what we should do, right? For example, Pastor Sam, we were talking uh, last week, and you're sharing with me the other day that, hey, as Asian Americans, like, we're like the, we're like the homeowners association's dream, right? We're, we're very passive, so we don't really ruffle any feathers right? We don't necessarily do anything bad. We don't break the rules because of our Asian American upbringing. But at the same time, we don't necessarily do anything positive or good. We don't contribute to the homeowners association or our neighborhood or our community, right? We think that as long as we take out our trash cans on Tuesdays, we don't go in the pool past 10, we pay our fees, we, you know, take care of our lawns, then we're good, right? We just, we just need to do our own things, keep the status quo, And I think that, though it might not seem uh, bad or evil in any way, I think that's the main challenge that we face. As a church predominantly filled with Asian Americans, we really don't see a reason to love our neighbors. There's no benefit to us, right? We think, hey, as long as we're not breaking the law, as long as we're not doing anything illegal, as long as we keep to ourselves, everything's gravy, everything's good, right? We don't see anything wrong with that. Yet by telling us that love does no wrong to a neighbor, Paul, what he's saying, he's not saying that, hey, we just have to do the bare minimum to love our neighbor. No, rather he's saying love does no wrong to a neighbor. So it actually seeks the highest good. Instead, it wants to actively do something for our neighbor. And this is the new covenant way to approach this command to love our neighbors, right? It'd be ridiculous for me to kind of on my way home, see, oh, my neighbor's house is broken into and think, you know, well, I wasn't the one that broke into his house. So I didn't really do him any harm. So I guess I love him. Right? I didn't do anything bad to him. Like, it'd be ridiculous for me to think that. Right. That's completely that doesn't make sense. Right. To love my neighbor would not be to just simply do no harm and stand by and watch and kind of be like, oh, too bad for him. But to love my neighbor would actually be for me to check in with him, ask what happened. Hey, what, what's missing? Can I help you in any way? Do you need a place to stay? It's to empathize to the point it's as if my home has been broken into, right? It's not someone else's uh, duty or responsibility or problem. It's my problem. That's what it means to love our neighbor. And I'll admit that's a bit of an extreme example, but the implication is clear, isn't it? To love our neighbor is to seek 
their highest good to fulfill their need to the point it's hard to tell, hey, who do you love more? Is it your neighbor or yourself? That's the degree to which we must love our neighbor. It's going above and beyond the status quo of our society where we just mind our own business, stay in your lane, right? To love our neighbor is to have a genuine, consistent concern for others. To have this concern that really can't help but be translated into action. So I know I'm going long in this first point, but to put together the who and the how, the, the definition of loving our neighbors is to seek the good of anyone that we come into contact with. It's to care about both your next door neighbor, what he's going through, and helping out the random stranger in distress. And when you think about it, loving your neighbor, it's, it's an extremely simple, but it's a very extremely challenging call as well. So that's the definition of loving our neighbors. And we'll see that this type of love for our neighbors, we are actually indebted. We have a debt to owe this to them. Uh, let's read verse eight. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, right? The phrasing might seem a little bit awkward to you. You might be wondering like, hey, Paul, why don't you just tell us, love your neighbor, love others, right? How come you say, owe no one anything and use all this language? And just know this, I could go into a lot more detail, but the beginning of chapter 13, has, it deals with our relationship to uh, government and authorities. And the verse right before, verse 7, it uses this language of to owe, to have a debt, right? Verse 7, it tells us to pay taxes, revenue, respect, and honor to whom it's owed because they've been placed there by God, right? And by, by virtue of that, our neighbors have been placed there by God as well. That's why when Paul, when he starts to talk about loving our neighbors, he cleverly uses the same language of owing nothing to anyone except one thing. It's love. And I think we, uh, we as a church, we use the ESV, the English Standard Version, as default. But I actually think the NIV actually translates this better. So let me read it in the New International Version. Paul actually says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. We have a debt to love others. All right, the, I know the word debt, it has a very not negative, not good connotation, right? Um, we've heard of or we've even experienced the, the horrors of credit card debt and the beasts known as compound interest. Most of us here have taken out huge amounts of school loans. And I know that as we mature as a family church, some of us are thinking about taking that next big step and taking out a home loan, right? And moving from the financial aspect of debt, and I think more relevantly and relatedly to us, we never want to be in relational debt, right? Pastor Tom, last week, he mentioned this idea of having a balanced love. And I think that's something we fall into so often, right? We, we precisely calculate how much our payments are going to be each month. We, we calculate what have I done for this person? What does he owe me? What do I owe her? We, we make these calculations uh, because both financially and relationally, we want to be free, right? We hate the feeling of feeling like we owe people something. We hate the feeling of being indebted to someone, of being shackled. So if we're given the choice, we would never choose to take on a loan or a debt that has never ending payments, right? That just doesn't make sense to us. Yet this is what 
Jesus exa exactly requires of us. So let me read verse 10 again in the NIV. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so notice this debt is, is a continuing debt. It's not just a debt that you pay once and for all. So what this means is this is a never ending debt, one that just, again, doesn't make sense for us to get into. This means that we can never say, all right, I've done all the loving that's required of me. I'm done. I never have to do that again. I've paid this debt off. We can never say that. Paul, instead, he gives us a permanent obligation for not just some Christians, but for all Christians. And if I'm being honest, it's very easy for me to think that I'm fulfilling my debt, my obligation, my duty to love my neighbors. Uh, as long as I just go to the monthly food bank that we have, uh, when it's my community group's turn, which is pretty much like once a year. Uh, or, or I think it's easy for me to think, hey, I've done my part. I've done my due diligence when I've talked to a newcomer once every couple months, once a quarter or so, right? And this kind of approach to loving neighbors, it's a very stop and start approach rather than this ongoing continual practice that Paul is calling us to. And I get it. It's so easy to get absorbed into our own issues and ignore and neglect this call. It's easy to think that loving our neighbor is, is optional for us or something that we do when we have the luxuries of time and money and resources. And we might think that, hey, during this time, we can just outsource this, this call to love our neighbors to our mercy or hospitality ministries, right? And we'll pitch in every once in a while. But the text, it shows that Paul is not just speaking to the spiritual elite or the members of the first century welcoming team. No, he's speaking to Christians. Every Christian, normal, old, average Joe Christians, speaking to you and to me. By virtue of being a Jesus follower, loving our neighbors, loving those around us is just, it's just what we do. It's just natural to us. So Paul, he calls it a debt in Romans 13, but actually I think it's just an encouragement to, to the church to keep on doing what they're doing. Keep on taking care of the, the orphan, the widow, the sick. Keep on doing that. That's what you owe them. That's just what you do naturally as followers of Christ. And I want to try to show us uh, exactly why this, quote, debt to love one another. I want to show us that it's not something we should avoid, but rather we should gladly run head on into. Because when we think about the greatest debt in the world, it's not a financial monetary figure, but it's a relational one. Right. It's the debt of sin. It's a debt that was paid by the only son of God, Jesus Christ. Not in part, but in full. And that price was his perfect, sinless life that was required only because of our continual rebellion and offense against God. God, he owes us nothing but wrath. In fact, he could have condemned us all to hell, and he would still be morally, perfectly just and good. He could have allowed us to pay for our debt of sin that we owed with our own lives but he flips the script, right? Instead of spending eternity without him, he flips the script by demonstrating his gracious, merciful, powerful agape love. 
And it's through the payment of the life of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, instead of requiring us to pay the continuing debt of sin with our lives, God instead tells us in this passage, he calls us now to pay the continuing debt to just love one another. On this side of heaven, this is a continuing debt because in our own strength, we can never hope to pay it off in full. That's why it's a continuing debt. We'll never be able to love to the extent that Christ loved us. But because of what Jesus has done, because of what God did two millennia ago, we're at least able to start. We're at least able to do so in part by loving our neighbors. See, the greatest debt in the world has already been paid. So when we grasp and understand this, we hardly see our responsibility to love our neighbors as debt. When we truly understand the gospel, we don't see loving our neighbors as this moral obligation that we do with this scowl on our face. But loving our neighbors is just a natural response to what has been done for our behalf. Going back to the State Farm analogy, uh, State Farm, right, they have a debt to be a good neighbor. And that means take care of the customers, give them quotes, and do all these things as long as the clients are paying their premiums, right? Sure, they'll provide excellent customer service, maybe even a discount double check, right? But when it comes down to it, State Farm, like every other company, they see debt in a purely transactional way, right? You pay me, I provide a service. You have good driving record, your, your premium is going to stay low. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. I'll care for you, but when the payments stop coming in, I never knew you, right? That's the transactional approach that State Farm has. But the command to love our neighbors, unlike State Farm, is that no matter what the consequences, no matter if we're getting paid, no matter if we're being attacked, no matter what the consequence is, it's not transactional. This call to love others is purely out of agape love. So ask yourselves right now, is this how you feel about loving your neighbor? Or, or is it just something optional? Is it just, just something that would be nice in an ideal world, right? Does loving our neighbors, does it feel like more of a burden or just a natural logical response to the debt of sin that Jesus Christ paid for us? So we went over the definition and now the debt to love our neighbors. Uh, we're going to see now uh, what it means to display neighborly love. This is our last point, the display of neighborly love. If you look in your Bibles, the heading of the ESV, it's going to read fulfilling the law through love. And the NIV, it's more explicit. It's just blatantly says love fulfills the law. So when we actually display neighborly love, we show that love fulfills the law. But what does this mean, right? What the heck does that mean? Uh, let's read verse nine again. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, if you know uh, the Old Testament, if you know your Bibles, or if you've even gone to a VBS, right? Uh, we're going to, those, those commandments are very familiar to us. And we're going to notice that they're all part of the 10 commandments. They come from the second half of it, which have to do with the horizontal aspect where we're dealing with one another and the 10 commandments without getting into too much detail and without boring all of us here today on this 4th of July. Uh, the, the 10 commandments are basically just the guidelines that Israel follow to live rightly before God. They're just the rules they live by, right? 
So Paul is saying, in effect, to live rightly before God, all of the commandments, they can be summed up in just one. Super simple. It's just to love your neighbor as yourself. And that makes sense because if you love your neighbor, if you seek their good, you're not going to commit adultery with or against them. You're not going to murder them. You're not going to steal from them. You're, you get the point, right? In verse 8, Paul says a person who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. In verse 10, he says that love is the fulfilling of the law. It can't get any more explicit. It can't get any more obvious. Essentially, Paul is showing us that by us loving our neighbors, we're following the guidelines that God has given to us. We're obeying him. We're living rightly. When we love our neighbors, we, we display the radical power of the gospel. We show that God's love through Jesus Christ fulfills the law. We're effectively showing to the world, hey, there's something different about us. It's not this transactional type of love that we have in society, but it's this love that can't be explained that is other focused. And we love our neighbors by following the examples that Jesus gives us. And I think by this point of the sermon, I think all of us were thinking very individually about loving our neighbors. But it, as I talked about it and, and during the planning of this message, I, I wondered, hey, what would it look like for us as a church to love our neighbors? Right. What effect would it have on our communities if we took this call more seriously on a corporate level? You know, one of our church's major values, I don't know if you are aware or have forgotten because we went over this a while back, but one of our church's major values is to be a faithful presence in the city, right? Uh, we, another value that we have is to, you know, care for the next generation. It's obvious the amount of time and resources that we're putting into VBS, but one of our church's values is to be a faithful presence in the city. If you think about it, basically what we're saying is we want to love our neighbors. That's basically what we're saying. This is something admittedly we have to grow into as a church, but to love and to serve and care for those in our community, that's something we want to be known for. But obviously it's been tough over this past year and a half uh, for a couple of reasons. A, we're a mobile church without a permanent location. Again, please pray for Buena Park High School, but we don't have the central location where we can call, hey, this is our community. This is our neighborhood. B, our members are scattered, again, relatedly, all over Southern California, right? We have people coming from LA, from Santa Monica, from down in deep Irvine to even the Inland Empire, right? We're scattered. So it's tough to kind of really uh, concretely love our neighbors. And most obviously, C, COVID just threw a big wrench in our church's plans, right? We couldn't really do much. And as we start to regather, starting next week, praise God, and as we get into this normal rhythm, I can't help but to think, hey, it would be so easy for our church to become inward focused, right? That's just, again, our natural way of love is inward centered, right? It could be so easy for us to think, hey, um, I, hope, I hope my church is doing well. And yes, we're called to love one another, right? We went over that several weeks ago. But it, I think it'd be so concerning for us when we're more concerned with just how we're doing, making sure we're good and completely ignoring what's going on in the city, the community, the neighborhood around us. So I wonder, I wonder if we can come out of this season with the renewed sense of loving our neighbors as a church, right? This can probably be a sermon in itself and uh, maybe even a series, but can you imagine if we were able to rally around and provide support 
for the people that are distressed in our cities, right? Can you imagine if we matured into a church that's just as concerned about growing disciples within the walls as we are for providing relief for those outside? Can we become a church that is known to seek the welfare of the city that we read in Jeremiah 29.7? Can we get involved with the matters of social justice without the baggage of social justice? Not because of the outrage that we see on social media, but because biblical justice is something we're called to do. It's a real biblical thing. Can we practically, tangibly meet the needs of those that are in need of a savior? How powerful of a witness would it be for the watching world in a culture that is so cynical, that is so suspicious of the church, that is watching our every move to see what we're gonna do wrong? How powerful would it be if we could subvert those expectations, we could flip them around by being a faithful presence in the city? Can we powerfully display the love of Jesus to those that don't know him? And this is a challenge for you and me, for all of us, church. It's concerning when I'm going to just, you know, squeeze every last drip out of this. It's concerning when State Farm is more known for good neighbors than the church is. It's easy to adopt this mindset that, hey, but you know, this was a crazy season, right? We're coming out of COVID. It's been hard for us to really interact and engage with our neighbors you know work's starting to pile up again we have to go into the office again oh that's i just had a kid right i have a career to think about i have to go back to school find an apartment all these things i get it i get it that this is a crazy season but if we're gonna wait for the perfect time when everything's all settled when everything's all kosher when are we gonna ever start to love our neighbors right life is always going to be crazy Right? As soon as one trouble goes away, another comes in, another replaces it. Right? If we're going to wait, we'll never start to be good neighbors. We'll never start to love our neighbors. We need to be intentional and we need to be sacrificial to be good neighbors. But if and when, hopefully we do, when we love our neighbors both individually and corporately, what we do is we display the gospel to the world. It draws people in. Our love for others, it displays God's love for us. And we don't need to do anything crazy or extravagant, right? We just need, all we need to do is just take one more step of obedience. Uh, practically, some of us, it just might mean we need to examine our hearts. We need to think about the gospel and be reminded again of the great debt that was paid by Jesus Christ on our behalf, right? And see that loving our neighbors is a natural reaction to that. Uh, for others of us, it might just mean, hey, taking a couple minutes today to think a little bit more deeply about who exactly are the neighbors? Who are the people I have an opportunity to serve and minister to? Who are these people? And for others, if you really do already have a heart to be a good neighbor, to love your neighbors, it might mean, hey, researching, getting involved in partnering with organizations or causes for the people in your area. Whatever it might be, I challenge all of us, church, to see if we can just take one more step of obedience toward displaying God's love through the way that we love our neighbors. Uh, so as we close our series, um, we just examined the love that Christians should have for our neighbors. Uh, we looked at the definition, the, the debt, and the display of loving our neighbors. And I hope that as we start meeting together in person again, I hope in the, in the midst of the excitement and the joy that's going to come in with regularly meeting and worshiping and singing together, 
I hope we don't forget and I hope we can keep in mind that we're called to love because we worship a God who is love, right? The love that we have for one another, for our family, for our neighbors, and even our enemies, they all stem from the fact that we love because God first loved us. And though we might fail, though we will fail in showing love for all these different people in our lives, our God will never fail. And for that, we thank and we praise him. So let me pray for us. 